Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Martellero, and this week my guest is Steve Silberman, an award-winning science writer. Steve, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Nice to be here. For the listeners, Steve Silberman is an award-winning science writer, award-winning book author, public speaker, TED Talk speaker, sometime record album producer, and a lifelong Mac user. <laughs> His writing on science, culture, and literature has been collected in a number of major anthologies, including the Best American Science Writing of the Year and the Best Business Stories of the Year. So, Steve, welcome to Background Note. I've been following you for a long time on Twitter, and you've written some amazing stuff. We were talking before the show about how I was impressed by an article you wrote back in 2011 at Wired, and I hadn't realized that we had communicated back then, so... It goes way back with you. That's great. Thank you so much for reading my stuff. Yeah, I think you're a really great writer, and that's why I wanted to have you on the show. Science writers have a warm place in my heart, because that's, that's what I do, technical writing, science writing. So tell me about your early career, your education, and your um, ambitions in the early years. What were you thinking about as a student? Well, uh, in a way, everything came together uh, later in life when I got hired by Wired, but... I started out loving science fiction. I was sort of a classic geek when I was a kid. Oh, cool. Uh, and so I was obsessed. Yeah, I was obsessed with, you know, Ray Bradbury and this anthology called Dangerous Visions. And also the, the TV show Outer Limits, the original series. Oh, I lived for it's, that it's show. Still the, what, what, I lived, I for, lived that for that show. The intro, when they took control of your television set, it gave me chills. And it still does. When I listen to it on YouTube. But so I was fascinated by science fiction, and uh, I won a poetry contest when I was in sixth grade. My poem ended up going to Expo 67, this big World's Fair. And so I actually got really into poetry and ended up uh, meeting a poet named Allen Ginsberg, who was a good friend of Jack Kerouac's uh, of the Beat Generation, if you've ever heard his name. Yep. Um, and so I ended up, yep, I ended up studying poetry and uh, working with Alan, actually, for many years. And he really trained me to do two things. To do deep research. He was a very political poet, and he filed cabinets in his apartment in New York full of uh, hard information, not just like poetic opinions, but research information about the things that he wrote about. He also taught me to be very attentive to language and to believe that Language could really change the world if used wisely. Uh, and his poem, Howl, did help change the world. So uh, I worked with him for a long time, then started doing journalism for the San Francisco Chronicle. And then eventually, um, I joined an early online community that I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with, called The Well. Oh, uh, yes. And I, I found yes. that I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved uh, well. I, it was like it felt like what I had been born to do once I found it, and this was really early it was before the web. Um, so I got really into the well, and on the basis of my writing on the well, uh, an editor at Wired named Gary Wolf asked me to become the senior editor of Wired's website, which was called Hotwire. If anybody remembers that, um, in fact, I'm ashamed to admit. We invented the ad banner, actually. 
at Hotwire. So I started writing uh, news stories, mostly about science, every day for a, uh, a digital native news service called Wired News. And that was my baptism of fire in science journalism, was writing one or two stories every day for Wired News starting in 1995. Um, what led you so into the science aspect of your writing? Well, it was really my original fascination with science fiction, in a way. And Wired was like science fiction that was becoming real at that moment, <laughs> you know? And so, in, in fact, I, I don't know if you remember the pilot episode of Outer Limits was called The Galaxy Being, and it had a very young Bill Bixby chatting, really, with an alien in deep space. And they both, they both brought their own unique experience to the conversation. And it wasn't until the internet came along that I felt like I could really participate in a conversation like that with people all across the world. It was a heady feeling in those days. We were all pioneers learning off computer systems on our Apple IIs, uh, if you go back that far, yep. I do. And learning how to have a computer yeah. in your house and things you could do with it. Having a haze modem and being able to dial into the world. Boy, it was a great time. Yep, that sound. Yep, the, the sound that when the door to the world would open, you know, which was the modem, uh, you know, coupling sound. Um, and I remember I was living with someone at the time who had a, sort of a dim view of the internet, and he would say that I was talking to my quote imaginary friend. <laughs> well, <laughs> we all we all have lots of imaginary friends now. <laughs> well, you know, before the real internet, you know, the dot com era, when the internet went public in 1996 yep. or seven, we had America Online and the Source and things like that, where people thought they were on the internet, yep. but actually they were on a service. It was a little bit more right. tightly controlled and more of a walled garden, so to speak. A lot of people over for years yeah, exactly. afterwards thought they were on the internet when they were on AOL. So Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Now when I, I, I remember, you know, being in chat rooms with strangers. Um, one of the stories that I wrote for Wired News got a female uh, name uh, to be in chat rooms and had a completely different experience of America online uh, than I had had as a male uh, for a week for research for this article. And so I started to become a sort of anthropologist of the online world. So what um, happened when you posed as a female? What, what, was it, what was the difference? What was going on there? Well, for one thing, uh, if I went into a chat room with a male name, nobody paid any attention to me whatsoever. <laughs> but if I went Just to another chat with a, with a female name, right, exactly, uh, I would know. But if I went in with a female name, not only subject to a tremendous amount of attention, but I was given too much credit. Like, if I said anything that was even half intelligent, you know, all these guys would chime in, you're amazing, you know? So that was pretty weird. But the really disturbing thing about it, actually was that if I, if someone was bugging me, you know, send me your pics, whatever, um, I would, and I said, sorry, you know, not interested. Uh, they would often come back at me with truly violent, uh, you know, threats. And so it was my first education in how the online world could be different for women than men. 
Interesting. Tell me about some of the other publications you've written for besides Wired. You have an interesting list. Yeah, I, I have a, I've written for a wide variety of publications ranging from the New York Times. I've written about autism and policing uh, for the New York Times and ADHD. Uh, I've written for Nature uh, magazine. I've written for uh, a Buddhist magazine called Lion's Roar, which is, you know, it's like the excellent uh, Buddhist, ma- one of two excellent Buddhist magazines. I've written for uh, really a ton of some of the places, both large and small. Had you developed a name for yourself at the well and wired? And were those the, was that the inroads to the instant acceptance at the New York Times and other places? How did that work? Well, the, it's interesting. Um, something, ha- something happened for journalists uh, in the last decade or so that is very telling, which was that when I was uh, working for Wired, I went from Hot Wired to the magazine. The magazine was, uh, you know, bigger salary, longer time to research and write stories. So it was more, it was kind of a more prominent position in journalism. Um, but I, I never really tried to become a, a sort of a name star. Like, uh, I didn't really care about my personal reputation um, other than I wanted to write the best story in the issue every month, you know, if I could. So uh, I wrote a bunch of stories for Wired. I wasn't really famous per se, but then as the magazine business changed, so, uh, you know, Condé Nast eventually bought Wired. They're the publishers of The New Yorker and Vogue. Uh, it became more of a sort of a star-driven uh, system. Then also journalists uh, all over the world realized that these big companies would were not guaranteeing them employment for the rest of their lives or whatever. So you had to sort of become your own brand. So once I, particularly once I wrote my book, Neurotribes, I became my own brand. I did a TED Talk. uh, And then it was no longer me just being a sort of faceless uh, representative of Wired, this great magazine, which I very much enjoyed doing. But then it was me, you know, being Steve Silberman out there in public. Uh, And I, I realized I had to really advance my own brand uh, because that was my career. It wasn't working for Wired or Condé Nast. It was me being a writer under my own name. Tell me about the path to neurotribes. How did you get interested in that subject? I know in your bio you said you didn't know anybody who had that affliction. So how did you get glommed onto that, and how did you end up pursuing it and writing a book about it? Okay, first thing I want to say is I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word affliction, but um, this is this is how it happened. Um, I did a story uh, for Wired about something called a geek cruise, which was a tech entrepreneur's effort to have tech conferences on uh, boats rather than on you know in the Holiday Inn in Pittsburgh. Um, so I wrote that story in the year two thousand. We went up to Alaska. The star of the cruise was a guy named Larry Wall, who you might know. I know he was him. the inventor the author of Pearl. Yeah, co-author. Co-author. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, co-author. Right. And uh, the Pearl uh, subculture really fascinated me. Larry was an incredibly interesting guy, also very eccentric. And right before we got back into port um, in Vancouver, I asked him if I could interview him at his house in Silicon Valley. And he said, yeah, sure, I should tell you, we have a daughter who is profoundly autistic. 
At that point, this is back in 2000, uh, even autism authorities thought autism was very, very rare. Uh, the prevalence of it was very underestimated. Um, so I had never you know, met anyone really who I thought was autistic, or I thought I had never met anyone. Um, I interviewed Larry. His daughter wasn't there that day. Uh, the story about the cruise ran and wired. But then about six months later, another technologically very adept family in Silicon Valley, the patriarch of that family, had built the first computer in the Middle East back in the 1940s. And I asked the sister-in-law of the woman I was profiling if I could interview her at her home. And she said, yeah, sure. By the way, we have a profoundly autistic daughter. And I thought, God, that's weird. I thought autism was rare. So, uh, like, a couple days later, I was in my favorite neighborhood cafe in San Francisco, the Reverie Cafe, telling that exact story about that weird coincidence about this rare condition to the person I was talking to. And a woman at the next table said, oh, my God, do you realize what's going on? And I said, what's going on? And she said, there's an epidemic of autism in Silicon Valley. Something terrible is happening to our children. So... You know, I got the chills and like hearing wow, the chords the stars of doom were aligning for you. But, yeah. <laughs> right, right. But you know, I wanted to find out if she was correct. You know, and I did a, a story that came out in 2001 called "The Geek Syndrome: about Autism in High Tech Communities." It was one of the first mainstream articles. You know, now everybody thinks, "Oh, geeks, autism." I've seen the Big Bang. You know. Uh, but back then, it was still a new suggestion that autistic traits were more common among uh, software engineers than, than the general public. So uh, it came out right after 9-11. So I thought it would be you know, completely forgotten, would sink like a stone. But a different thing happened, which was I got email about that article almost every week for 10 years. And there were people, these were from, uh, the emails were from autistic people who had struggled to find jobs or to get health care, from the families of autistic people who suddenly recognized their relatives in the descriptions of autism that I had made in the Geek Syndrome. Uh, and basically, there was a tremendous amount of interest out there in the tech community about people with autistic traits. And I started to realize that people with diagnosable autism in particular, people with diagnosable autism in particular faced really serious problems. And these problems were not uh, symptoms of their autism. They were symptoms of a society that was not set up to meet their needs. And in the meantime, in the 10 years since my article had been published in Wired, society had become obsessed with autism, but it was obsessed with a different question whether or not vaccines cause autism. So well, I'm going to talk to you more about autism in the second half of the show. But first, it's time for a commercial break. Folks, I'm chatting with best-selling science author Steve Silberman. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Charlotte Henry with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon or Macmore, simply go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter www.macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, 
and that will take you to our special page for Apple and all our other affiliate partners. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their way. Pretty cool, right? And even better, you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts just like this one. So, The next time you're thinking about an online purchase, please do come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. We're back. I'm chatting with best-selling science author and writer Steve Silberman. So I'm curious about autism, the um, estimation of what it is, the effect it has on people, what causes it. Tell Tell me more about the clinical side of autism. I'm curious. Sure. It's a form of brain wiring than what non-autistic people are, is sometimes called neurotypical people. And this brain wiring can make certain forms of input really overwhelming. So an autistic person can get completely overwhelmed with the buzzing of a fluorescent light in the ceiling that a typical person can't even hear. Um, autistic people have trouble figuring out how non-autistic people feel by observing them in just the same way, I might add, that non-autistic people have trouble figuring out how autistic people feel. Autistic people often do not have body language that, to a neurotypical person, reveals their inner state. So there's what's called the double empathy problem in autism. Both sides have uh, trouble figuring out how each other feels. Some autistic people are unable to use spoken language and do better by typing on a keyboard. Um, and in fact, the invention of email, which I talk about in my book and, and social networks, were a boon for autistic people because they could communicate with one another uh, without having to react in real time to stuff like body language and tone of voice, which they often uh, struggle to parse. Um, and uh, autism ranges so widely that some people with autism need high amounts of support 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Other people on the autism spectrum become leaders of big Silicon Valley companies, or at least your engineers there, actually the CEO. Um, and so there's, it's even broader, autism is even broader than non-autism, you could say in that uh, there's such a wide range of behaviors and challenges and gifts. Uh, autistic people often have very precise memories for data, uh, very good minds for sort of creating taxonomies of data. A lot of the um, tra- traits of the traditional geek are also autistic traits, and that's no accident. Does it mean um, an autistic person genes- is naturally more intelligent, or does it run the spectrum it's the spectrum. It's the, those things that, like, I definitely wouldn't call all autistic people prodigies or anything. Some of them you know, really struggle to get by in life at all. Um, but there are certain types of prodigies that are more common among autistic people than non-autistic people. For instance, people with perfect pitch. People who can hear a note and name exactly what note that is without hearing a reference tone. That's very common among autistic people, but very rare among non-autistic people. Interesting. Interesting. 
How is your book so, done? I, I think uh, from your website, Neuro Tribes has been a sensation. Yeah, it was. It, I did it to change the world, which is what I wanted to do. Um, there was a, there were a lot of misconceptions about autism. The biggest one being that it was rare, and then suddenly started burning up in the early nineties. And one of the main reasons why I wrote Neuro Tribes was that even if you read a, a, an excellent publication like the New York Times. They would say, the reason for the apparent rise in autism prevalence is a mystery. It's a baffling enigma. And after a while, I thought, why is it such an enigma? Now, we have scientists working on this. Why can't they figure this out? And it turned out that the answer wasn't in the science. It was in the history. It was because autism had been systematically underestimated for decades and underestimated by the guy who claimed to discover this guy, Lee O'Connor, um, he was simply wrong. And then when a woman named Lorna Wayne, who was a cognitive psychiatrist in London, came along and said, no, actually, autism is really not. And in fact, it's a spectrum. It shades into eccentric normalities. Um, then, only then, did the numbers start soaring. And so that was really the key to understanding why you know, people who are my age, I'm sort of a trailing age baby boomer, People might say, why had I ever heard about autism when I was a kid? That's why. Because it was mistakenly believed to be rare. And then once Lauren Wing invented the spectrum, or sort of recognized the spectrum, uh, the true prevalence of autism became known to us. And that's what's happened for the last 20 years. Sounds like your book is just about change the world. It, it has helped to change the world. It's been very exciting. I mean, I miss, you know, I was supposed to go to Europe five times this summer to give talks, but obviously those have all been canceled. But really exciting to see not just the book be a success, but the tribe of people, as I know, called the neurotribes mode, the tribe of people who are autistic have uh, really come together to set their own agenda, to say we need input into the research. This is about us. There should be nothing about us without us. They say, and the autism rights movement has become an outgrowth of the disability rights movement, as it should really, because autism is a very common disability. And uh, it's been wonderful to be uh, sort of a mainstream journalist who covered the birth of that civil rights movement. All right, so let's move on. We have only a little time left. You did a famous interview with Steve Sorry. Jobs you told me about during the pre-show. I'd like to hear about this interview you did with Steve Jobs. Tell me more. Sure. Um, well, it's not a famous interview with Steve Jobs because it was never published. But what, what happened was this. I am a lifelong uh, Mac user and Apple fan. I love Apple computers. I have never used anything else. You know, Windows computer would, would give me the trauma. Um, so I was very excited when the when Wired Magazine asked me to interview Steve Jobs for what was going to be the cover of the first issue of Wired of the 21st century. In fact, we were planning a cover along coming to zero, you know, because uh, Steve had returned to Apple and uh, you know, was starting a really triumphant run there. And so I, I negotiated with Apple for months, really. They wanted to see everything I'd written, even the book I'd written about Faithful Dead. Uh, we went back and forth. We finally agreed on a time. 
Um, I went down to Apple the night before, so I wouldn't be late. I was thrilled to meet Steve. Um, I had read a bunch of biographies of him before heading down there. And, you know, I thought to myself, why are all these biographies kind of like slanted against Steve? Like they're all, you know, talking about, you know, that he's not the nicest guy on earth, shall we say. And um, I thought maybe that was biased, but I was thrilled, you know. So I go to Apple. Um, Steve is an hour and a half late for you, which I thought was a little weird. Um, in the hour and a half, uh, my PR handler is kind of nervously upping the ante of what she was going to give me uh, for uh, excusing him being late, including cinnamon display, which was just out. Of course, I couldn't do that. You know, I couldn't accept such a thing. Then he walked to the room. Uh, he was barefoot. He was unshaven. Did not look at me. This was the way long before his sickness. Uh, this was you know, back in uh, 2001, I guess. Um, and he was, uh, he did not look happy at all. And I had no idea what was going on. Wow. Um, so I asked him, yeah, I asked him a kind of a, you know, a safe, I thought, first question uh, that would, you know, put him at ease. And I asked him about like, the future of uh, the education market for Apple because the education market had been so um, crucial for Apple's early days. And Steve says, I'm like, that's the stupidest question I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> you know? And I said, oh, really? And, then, you know, I asked him a few more questions and all of them were like that. You know, like Steve gave me uh, not usable answers, shall we say. You know, and he was like playing the desk, you know. And so by that point, you know, about three or four questions in, I thought, well, I'm really in trouble here. Like, this isn't going well at all, you know. I think Steve was trying and to get control so, of the interview and see how you reacted. Yeah, well, I guess he did. Yeah. So yeah. at this point, uh, I, I had actually studied with uh, a Zen teacher that Steve had studied with and who married him, actually. Cobinchino. And so I said to Steve, you know, actually I started with Cobinchino and the handler said, you know, like, how dare you ask Steve a personal question? You know, this is supposed to be about, you know, the business. So like, okay. So I asked Steve another question and he gave me a very snappy answer. And at that point I decided that um, Akita was uh, appropriate uh, to save my own sense of self-respect. And so I just stood up, e- extended my hand, which caused Steve to you know, sort of reflexively end his hand. And I said, Steve, it's obvious that the questions are not gaining your interest. I suggest we, we both put this behind us and move on. And I walked out the door, and uh, the handler was white as a sheet. And uh, on the way out, I ran to Johnny Ive, who I had interviewed. I was supposed to interview him. He was still relatively unknown. He was a new guy. Uh, I had interviewed him the day before. We had gotten along so well. A 15-minute interview got to two hours or something like that. So I was thrilled about that. Um, and so I ran into Johnny as I'm running out the door. And, and Johnny says, how'd it go? You know, and I said, not good, you know. Um, <laughs> When I got back to the hotel, 
the light on the hotel phone was blinking. And Apple Legal had called Condé Nast Legal and threatened to pull all Apple advertising from there if we ran quote, a word of that interview. But you agreed so on the agenda I mean, ahead I of time, though, right? Yeah, but Steve didn't, you know, he, anyway, I asked any question he, he was not interested. Oh. I, you know, obviously, I was haunted by that, like, what have I done, you know? And then it just happened that later that day I saw the new issue of Wired. I have no idea, I should say officially, I have no idea if this had anything to do with anything. But there was a sort of a comedy element in that issue of Wired. It was pictures of uh, various executives with handwritten annotations by the executive. And there was a picture of Steve. And in Steve's alleged writer, it said, not this one makes me look fat. You know, so I like I thought, oh, Steve just like see that right before he came into the room or something. You know, I've never figured out why Steve was so uh, down on talking to me. And we uh, just like trying to see how I would navigate that environment. It was impossible to navigate. He did not want to talk. Um, the good thing that came out of that horrible situation was uh, that I became friends with Johnny Ive, and I just want to tell you a very short, wonderful story about him. Um, I used to see him in my thing I was talking about before, and he never hyped Apple stuff to me. We didn't talk about Apple, really. We just said hello and talked about the neighborhood and talked about his kids and all this. He was he was a lovely, he is a lovely person. Um, but one day, I went up to him and I said, Johnny, I, I saw the MacBook Air, which was just now. I said, it's really beautiful and cheap. And he said, oh, thank you. And he said, have you seen the phone? The iPhone is going to too. I said, and he said, oh, you might check out the phone. People seem to like it. <laughs> so he was like the humblest guy I could imagine. Cool, cool. Well, we're going to have to bring the show to a close with that. I want to thank you for joining me and telling me these interesting stories. I'm fascinated. Steve, tell us how you can be reached um, on Twitter. I'm Steve Silberman on Twitter. That's S-E-E-D-E-S-I-L-B-S-B-O-Y-E-R-N-A-N. And I'd love to see listeners there. It's been great. Thank you for joining me on the show. I appreciate it. Folks, you've been listening to award-winning science writers Steve Silberman and John Marcellaro on the Mac Observer's background mode. We'll see you again next week.